Uh, I'd love for you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 14 today. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Romans 14. We're walking through the book of Romans. We started 18 weeks ago in chapter one. We've made it to chapter, uh, chapter 14 today. And uh, let me just say this, like there's something about walking through these books that sometimes is challenging to me because there are portions of the Bible that at times I get to a Sunday and I think, do I really want to preach this today? Right? Do I really want to talk about this? Because it would be way easier just to skip this one or move to something that's a little bit more in my bandwidth, my power alley, and, uh, and yet we're walking through it. And so I'm like, well, I got to teach it because we're there. And so I wrote this sermon this week and then I sent it to our team. And on my email, I literally said, I don't like my sermon, so expect it to change and then I didn't change it. So you're gonna get the mediocre thing that I sent to our team this week. So here you go. Um, but as you're doing, just, that's just a warning ahead of time, right? You like that. You're like, I'm glad I came today. Can we get that Steve guy back up, right? Um, way better, right? Before I dive into this, just a quick question. I, I, I grew up in Arizona, but strangely, I never visited the Grand Canyon until I was in college, which is really weird. Like I lived in Flagstaff as a child which is just like not very far away. And it wasn't until college, we were gonna go hike rim to rim. And that's the first time that I went to the Grand Canyon. How many of you have been to the Grand Canyon? Raise your hand if you've ever been there. You remember getting there? You remember your impressions? Like you remember what you thought it might be and then what it actually was? I remember seeing this image the first time I showed up to the Grand Canyon and it blew my mind. Like, first of all, this was the view that I was looking at when I was gonna cross from one side to the other and that was way bigger than I thought it was gonna be. I thought it was gonna be like, there's a cliff and then there's like a big hole and then there's a cliff on the other side and we're just gonna like wind our way down and wind our way up, it'll be over. And then I got there and there's this beautiful but also really complex landscape in front of us, right? Like the Grand Canyon is not just a canyon. The Grand Canyon is a series of canyons within canyons. There are these layers and there are these fractures and there are these fingers that go off in all of these different directions and you can't really describe it or take it all in in just a singular moment. It is like vast, insurmountable, and complex, and, and I mentioned this and I just put this image here because for me there are times when I look out at the landscape of, of the church and, and we've talked about what the church is supposed to be in a community but when I think about the church and I think about what it is and what it's all about, I, I kind of think the church looks like this. It's this complex like there are layers and there are divisions and there are, there are fingers off in all these other directions and there's some that are shallow and there are some that are deep and there's some people that say, no, my part of this is right and your part is wrong and some say she's right and he's wrong or some think that we've got the answer or we nailed this thing down and you've got it wrong and sometimes I just look at the church and all the churches in the, in, in the world and I, all the diversity, all the things that are going on and the arguments and I just go, it kind of looks like that and that's as an insider then I stop and I think about like what if you're what if you're not an, an, an insider like what if you're not a church person that might be some of you today like you're new to this thing and you're kind of looking you're like I've always been kind of leery but I'm kind of interested but you look at the church from the outside and I wonder like what does it look like to you and I don't have an answer for that by the way I just wonder and then it makes me ask another question and that's this what are we known for? Like, what are we known for? Because I, I think I know what I want us to be known for, but how do people know us? Like, do people know us for our love? 
Because that's something Jesus was pretty clear on. Jesus was really clear, like, hey, if you're my followers, people are gonna know you because you are just radically loving. Like, you are unbelievably loving and gracious and wonderful, merciful people. Like, Jesus said that, you're gonna be loving. So when people, like, they hear about the church or they hear about even our church, they go, man, that's the most loving group of people that I've ever met. Is that our reputation? Or, 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 or joy. The Lord said that the joy of the Lord should be our what? our strength. Do people look at us and they go, man, those are the happiest people I've ever met in my life. Like, I love the joy they have. Like, even in hard times, they find joy. Like, is that what people say about us? Like, these radically inclusive, radically joyful, radically loving people, is that what people experience? Or do they know us for what we do and don't do? I say that because that's the most common answer that people that are on the outside of the church say about Christianity. When they're asked about what Christianity is all about, what it means to be a Christian, the number one opinion of Christians from people who aren't Christians is that we are known for our rules and our regulations. So what are we about? Is this even a we thing at all? Like, should we care? Can I, can you, can we do anything about who we are? Well, the answer to that question is really clear. If you look at Paul's letter to the Roman church, it's painstakingly clear. And we've been walking through this letter. And if you think that who we are doesn't matter, like if you think that's really not a big deal, this is just an individual sport, then I have a few things that I wanna point out to you. Because today we dive into chapter 14, and one of the largest sections of this entire letter, before I tell you what it's about, it, it's, it's all about this idea of how we're known. And, and I just want to back up and I want to remind you of some things that he's told us before this moment. Um, his instruction on developing a Christian mind. The Apostle Paul, I think it's probably a pretty important thing to some of us in the room, like the way we think about things. He gave us two verses to talk about that. Uh, the, the instruction on, on having a right estimation of yourself and of one another, your need to encourage others, six verses. A call to love one another, he gave 13 verses to that. Material on how to navigate the, the balance between the church and the state, he gave 14 verses on that. Um, I would agree that when somebody talks a lot about something, that's probably something they care a lot about, right? If somebody's got a one-track mind, you're like, okay, give it a rest. We know you care about this, right? It's symbolic of importance. The amount of words you give to something represents how important you believe this to be. When Paul moves to his discussion of how Christ followers are to accept and support one another, especially when they don't think or behave or act like we think they should, to this particular subject, he uses all of chapter 14 and the first half of chapter 15, 35 verses, and he saves it for last. He's gonna say a few other things towards the very end, but, it, but he ends his teaching with this. It's not politics, it's not economics, it's not ecology, it's not even theology. One of the largest sections in the entire letter is on instruction on how to deal with differences, disagreements in the community of faith, how we get along when we don't agree. How do we get along when we don't agree? He talks the most about. That, that tells us a few things. And then the first thing would be this. The first thing is that 
we apparently have a tendency to disagree, right? We, we apparently have a tendency to not get along, to have opinions that cause us to not get along with each other. So there's a natural tendency that exists that needs to be addressed. The second thing that I think this reveals to us is that what you do and what you say and how you think and act actually matters. And, and as much as you want to say, well, no, 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 you don't understand. Like, I'm not that big of a deal. My voice isn't really that loud. Like, what is my opinion? Like, you might even say, like, my opinion and what I share with a few friends or my comments, they don't really matter. No, 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 no. That's not actually true. You and me as individuals we make up this thing. This is never going to be, well, I only shared that with a few friends who think like me kind of thing. So what Paul presents to us is a total heart check. How's your attitude? Where's your thinking? Finally, it matters because it impacts our effectiveness both inside and outside. Our ability to be effective and to be who we're supposed to be as the church is tied to this. How can we be different? How can we disagree without destroying one another? That's an incredibly important thing to wrestle with. So as we walk through Romans 14, I want, I want you to see this. But, but here, here, here's the deal. As much as we'll see on the surface how to get along, and how important it is, what we see is not the way that we are supposed to act. But instead, what we see is the motive. We see the heart behind this. We'll see that this is not an instruction on how to be nice. Like, Dale Carnegie wrote that book. It's called How to Win Friends and Influence People, right? This is not just to like, here's how to be a nice person. I'm not, I'm not saying that some of you shouldn't read it. Some of you, you might wanna read it. It might be a good thing for you, but this is just not about techniques for treating people well. Here's just a way to like kind of cover up the things you really feel. Like here's this corner of the Grand Canyon and we're gonna throw a sheet over it and not let you see that part by behaving a particular way. That's not what Paul's getting at here. This is way more meaningful, far deeper, far more transforming, and guess what? Far more difficult to actually live in than some just good relational habits. Like being a relationally intelligent person, this is more than that. This is total reorientation. The reason we do this, the reason we fight, the reason we don't get along, it isn't because we're bad at relationships. It's because there's this principle that Paul started with at the beginning of this letter in chapter one that impacts and changes everything that we face, including one of the most notable dynamics of being a part of this thing called Christianity. So whether you've been a Christ follower for years or maybe you just like strolled in today, you're like, wow, I picked a Sunday. Like I picked a weird one to show up. You're gonna see, I think this gets to the heart of the matter of what we're supposed to be like and be about. So Romans chapter 14, verse one. Paul says this, he says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Sorry, vegetarians. Different context, I'll explain it later sometime, but it's not what he's saying. He's not saying vegetarians are weak. He says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? 
It is before his own master that he stands or falls and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. So Paul starts off and he says, as for the one who is weak in faith. Now this tells us who's, who Paul's writing to or it tells us what a brilliant communicator he is because you would think, well, in this moment he's writing to the strong in faith or he's writing to everyone and he's using this communication technique where he's just letting everybody think that they're the strong brother, Right? It's like when somebody says to you, like they're going to tell you something you don't know, but they tell you, you already know this because you're smart, but then they tell you something you didn't know and you're like, I am smart and thank you for teaching me. Like, I think that's what Paul's doing here, right? You can, we're just going to assume you all are strong, but it tells us that there are within the community of faith, and I think this is important, there are within the community of Christ some who are strong in faith and then there are some who are weak in faith. We'll get to that more next week, Hopefully. But it's the second half of this statement that, that he begins to talk about something that I think is really important for us to understand. He says, don't quarrel over opinions. And he uses the word opinions to talk about our opinions. There's something in our nature, many of us, that causes us to develop an idea, something that's a theory. We get very strong about it, and then we'll argue about it until we're blue in the face. We all have our own opinions about things. Um, years ago, I would mountain bike with this guy named Eric Barrett. He's an outdoorsman, rock climber, writes like guidebooks and mountain biking stuff. He's just like really outdoorsy kind of guy. And I would oftentimes ask him questions when we were out, and I would listen to him in group conversations. And it was always funny when someone would say something that he didn't agree with, he would say this. He'd say, I've seen people do it, but I wouldn't recommend it. And I kept hearing him for like a couple of years. He'd say that, well, I've seen people do that, but I wouldn't recommend it. And finally, I realized what he was saying was, in my opinion, that's really stupid. That's what he was really saying, because we all have opinions about things, right? And in the church, we have opinions, over those next few verses that I read, Paul brings up several items that were debatable during the time. One person eats things that another person thinks is wrong. That's verse two. One person thinks a certain day is more sacred than other days. Other things, the other one thinks all days are alike. That's verse five. One person abstains from things that another person doesn't abstain from. These were items of debate, issues that people had strong opinions on. Some Christians thought that's okay. Other Christians said that's not okay. Sound familiar? <laughs> Sound familiar, right? One person believes that smoking is inherently evil in the sight of God. Another person says, well, it might not be the healthiest choice. There's nothing evil about it, right? One person has a glass of wine or two with dinner, another person a beer after mowing the lawn, but another person still says, out of devotion to God, I abstain from alcohol. One person exercises frequently, they watch what they eat as this stewardship of what God has given them, and another person exercises liberty as it relates to exercise and their diet, right? Some people are iron chefs. Sorry, Steve, I had to go there. One person reads their Bible every day and records their thoughts and writes their prayers in this journal, and another person reads a little devotional as they walk out the door. One person says, I'm only sending my kids to, to private school. I'm only going to homeschool my kids. Another person says, I'm going to send my kids to public school. One person listens to only one kind of music. Another person says, I listen to all music. One person says, I only read Christian literature. Another person says, I read all literature. These differences, don't even get me started on what people theorize around the end times. Won't even go there, right? Because there's a lot of theories on that stuff. So question for you. 
just to show how relevant this is, how many of you have had a discussion, we'll just call it a discussion, not an argument, just a discussion, over a debatable issue like one of these in the last couple of months? Raise your hand if you've had that kind of conversation. Pretty relevant, right? One more question. How many of you have an opinion about something that I just read about? <laughs> a lot of opinions in the room, right? We have a lot of opinions. I could go on and on, and I could outline, I could delineate all the debatable issues that could be addressed out of these verses. But that's not the real issue for today. The point isn't to name all the debatable matters that we face. The purpose is to answer the question or understand to what extent do these debatable matters matter? How much do they matter? And the answer is in the first verse of those we just read. Verse one says, welcome him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. That's pretty simple instruction, right? It says to what? You welcome them. You bring them in. That word accept is no small one. It means that we accept them with all of the love and all of the forgiveness that Jesus accepted us with. That's the idea there. And, and I want you to think about that for just a minute. Think about like in your early days of when you first started like leaning in, those of you that are Christ followers, you started leaning into Jesus and like listening to him and saying like, I, I want you to be in my life. Do you think that when you first started journeying with Jesus that you had 100% agreement on every topic with Jesus? I don't think so either. Thank you for being honest. I think Jesus was probably like, well, we got some different opinions on a lot of things here, but I love you and I accept you anyways, right? I'm bringing you in. Yeah. He accepted us and we do the same for the people who have a different opinion about disputable matters. So, so here's the question I know you're all wrestling with and there's this tension and you're like, well, then what's a disputable matter? What's a, what is it? What's a disputable matter? Think about that for just a second. What is a disputable matter? And, and here, here's how I would define it. Any issue that isn't related to life and death, which is not specifically addressed in the Bible, that's a good place to start. That's a disputable matter. Or, or this. Uh, this is another way to think about this. If it takes you 10 verses and 30 minutes to prove your point, you're probably in the realm of disputable issues, right? Like you gotta prove your point and you know, like put an outline together and argue like you might, this might be disputable. Or this one, how about this one, another test. If you can debate both sides of the argument from a biblical basis, it's probably a disputable matter, right? Are you with me on this? Does that make sense? That leaves a lot of things in a disputable category. And what does he say our response should be? You don't pass judgment. In fact, he even says this, he's not your servant. Don't worry about it. Remember the very beginning in chapter one, there was this theme that Paul began to weave through the entire letter and that is that we are slaves to Christ. The, the fundamental principle of what it means to be a Christ follower is that we relinquish leadership of our life to Jesus. We become slaves. Paul used the word doulos, that this idea that we have submitted our lives to him. We are slaves to Jesus. So Paul appeals to this again and he says, why do you as a slave to Jesus worry about another one of Jesus's doulases? Why are you worried about their behavior. Mind your own business. His master will deal with it. You're not tattling on other servants. 
Don't worry about it. And then he continues on in verse five. He says, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Catch that. Be fully convinced in your own mind. So he's not telling you to be unconvinced. I'll get to that in just a minute. Verse six, he says, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord of both the dead and of the living. Now, he starts this thing off and he's talking about something that honestly, like we don't really debate much about these days. Like it's, it's almost completely irrelevant except for one thing that I'll get to. They're arguing about the days of worship. Should we worship on Saturday or, or Sunday? Or like what, which day should it be? And he says something really interesting um, that, that might not be true of our similar debates around debatable issues. Regarding this, he says, but you guys, you serve the Lord either way. You're arguing about which day to worship. And he goes, they're both good. You're worshiping God. Quit worrying about it, right? And these debatable issues and these things, both groups are debating from a posture of devotion to God. And that, as radically as different as your ideas may be, that means they're both okay because they're rooted in devotion to God. So you can imagine how hard this was. They're looking at each other like, no way, how can you say that? There's no way, like we have such a strong opinion. And he says, no, it's disputable. So yes way, there is a way that they both can be true. This is the part that for us in our culture today, a lot of us get kind of excited about, right? We get excited, that's what I call this. It's a, it's a principle that I call are you saying I can eat ice cream and lose weight? <laughs> we love those kinds of promises. Wait a second. Are you saying like... So we, we all have behaviors. We all have things that we're up to. We have things that we're doing that other people disagree with. And then we come to this. And we want to say, see, it's debatable. And since it's debatable, you can't tell me what to do, right? So I can do whatever I want, right? Don't tell me how to live my life. That's basically what we do with this, right? I'm going to eat ice cream and I'm going to lose weight. I promise you this is going to work, right? And nothing could be further from the truth. See, something being debatable doesn't make that something acceptable. Just because it's gray doesn't mean it's all good. Well, it's kind of a gray area, so you know, we're gonna throw up our hands. No, in fact, I would venture to say that based on what Paul is saying in these verses, that if it's debatable, if it's gray, then you probably have a lot more work to do than if something isn't gray. Are you tracking with me? He actually tells us to be convinced in our own minds to be thinking about these things. Like you need to be convinced about what's right for you between you and the Lord. So what makes this ambiguous activity acceptable is the motive behind your heart. Is your heart right before God? Like are you, are you coming from the right posture? We oftentimes, we're, we're just 
thinking about like the references to justify our behavior to point out the ambiguity to say, well, the Bible never really says that. But Paul goes, no, 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 if, if you're doing that, then you probably need to lean in. Like that's actually where you need to listen to God a little more. Like what does he say about this? It's about who you're living for, not about you. And Paul gives us one of the single most difficult verses for American Christians in particular, especially affluent, educated, independent, well-resourced Americans, one of the hardest verses for us to swallow. And I say that because I think I'm one of those people. He says, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. What does that mean? It means we don't belong to ourselves. If you're arguing from a position where you say, I belong to myself, you've missed the point completely. We're the Lord's. When you came to Christ, you gave up your rights to be in charge, living to the Lord, dying to the Lord. What you live for and what you die for is not determined by you anymore. It's determined by him. Your conversation with him. You leaning into him. A couple decades ago, I was working with college students and we would do these summer missions projects and then there would be these weekend breaks where we'd have a break between missions and some of the team would stay with me. And I had this habit back then, uh, I had a favorite activity that I used to take college students to go do. Um, we used to love to hurl our bodies off of perfectly good ground called cliffs into the air and into water. Like sometimes, I mean, the highest ever was an 85-foot cliff. It was the dumbest thing I ever did. Into a blind landing, no less, right? Couldn't see the landing. And I would take students to go do this with me because I thought this was a smart thing to do while their parents weren't watching. Um, <clears throat> and I, I would never do this today. I like now, I'm on the other side of the line of stupidity um, that like looks maybe more like courage, but there's sometimes that's a blurry line. And uh, so we're gonna go do this. And there was this guy with us, his name was John. And John was like the most daring guy. I always got John to do everything crazy with me. But this particular day, we're, we're gonna go to the lake. And I go, come on, man, we're gonna go do this. And he's, he's got no towel, he's got no swim trunks, nothing. And I, I'm like, what are you doing? Like, are you afraid? And I, you know, this is, by the way, this is a great way to motivate men. I start doing the chicken wing thing. Oh, come on, man. Come on, are you afraid to go cliff jumping? There's something about mocking men that's a really good motivational tactic, just so you know. And, uh, and so he's not budging. He's not budging at all. And, uh, and so then I just, I decide I'm gonna be nice, which is like my second tactic. Like if insulting someone doesn't work, then be nice to them. And so I'm like, come on, hey man, like this is actually gonna be really fun. Like I really want you to do it with me. It's gonna be just a great time together. We're gonna be gone for hours. Like you should really go. The guy doesn't budge. We go, nobody gets hurt. We have all kinds of fun. Come back, he's still sitting there, hanging out, doing nothing the whole time. And I found out his reason for not coming. He didn't believe in mixed bathing. 20, 21-year-old guy who doesn't, he didn't, like he said, I don't, I'm not comfortable when men and women are swimming in the same place together. Like my mind was blown. I was like, really? Like that's really, really conservative. I was stunned. I was like, wow, that's really legalistic. Like that's pretty extreme. And I'm literally, I'm like struggling as I'm listening to this. I got to know over the next several months him a lot better and I discovered something that not a lot of people knew, and that's that his family had a really severe history of sexual sin and sexual addiction. And he didn't just have a front row seat of it, he'd been exposed to it firsthand. 
And in that season of his life, he realized he thought he had a propensity towards the same kind of stuff in his life. And so because of that, he put the guideline on himself. Never put it on anybody else. Never, never wanted to condemn. Wasn't even willing to talk about it until I pressed him and pressed him and pressed him because it was just something that he and the Lord had decided. I have another friend who was raised in the home of a neglectful, sometimes abusive, alcoholic father. Understandably, he has some really strong feelings about alcohol in his own private home. Here are some disputable matters that matter a whole lot to them, right? That very, that they matter very much, not just to these people, but I think it matters to their relationship with God and what they're walking through. It's vitally important that we think about these issues, that we think about how things affect our lives. Because just the fact that they're debatable or disputable does not mean that they are benign issues. They still matter to us as individuals. We still need to develop our own thoughts on these issues. But what these verses also say is that when we do develop our convictions, and sometimes our opinions start to feel like convictions, when we do that, that we also accept those who have opinions or convictions that are different than ours. Let your position be one that is born out of your relationship with the Lord and let it be one that you don't force on other people. That's what Paul is saying. If you're able to exercise and experience liberty in a particular area, great. Don't judge those who still need some guardrails in their life. And if God has spoken to you about a particular issue in your life and you're putting up guardrails, don't put guardrails on other people's lives. Disputable matters matter to you. And so, so, what do, so what do we do with these convictions? How do we respond to these things? How do we handle them in the context of community? Paul's next few verses say this. In verse 10, he says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Don't judge anymore. That's what he says. Let God do that, right? There's this inside-out grace work that God does with us, all of us. What Paul is getting to is this. Would you trust that Jesus is doing in others what he's also been doing in you? Would you trust that Jesus is working on them? But would you also maybe maintain this idea that he could be starting someplace else in their life than the place he started in your life? So don't judge. Don't just love them. And imagine if we as individuals or we as a, as a collective we, imagine if what we were known for was our love and our joy and our mercy, our forgiveness. We're gonna close with communion together today. So I'm, I'm gonna encourage you to take the communion cup out and open it. I mentioned this earlier, but I want to mention this again. This idea of accepting one another 
is rooted in the idea that you and I accept others in our life, that we accept those that have different opinions than us in the love and in the acceptance that we have received from Jesus. Which is why I think it's so brilliant that when Jesus was trying to create a new humanity, when he was saying, I want there to be a new group of people who live an entirely new way in the world, that he would give them such a beautiful symbol that would drive to the heart of their soul and change who they were from the inside out. Jesus understood, he knew that if you and I could regularly come to a place where we would remind ourselves of the extremes to which grace and love and mercy and forgiveness were extended to us. That if we could actually absorb that, take it in, let it, let it seep into our souls, that we would be the kind of people who knew grace, knew what it was like to receive love unconditionally. He knew we would be a different kind of people in the world. And so he sat with his disciples the night that he was betrayed and he took bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body, broken for you. Eat this and remember me. Let's eat together and remember Jesus. Scripture says that after that he took the cup, and he blessed it, and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, a new deal, a new way that God works with humanity. Drink and remember him together. Would you stand with me? We like to close with a benediction it's just a sending prayer into our week. A prayer that we would be the people who have put ourselves before the scriptures and allowed them to shape our hearts and shape our minds. So if you're willing to receive this prayer, just hold out your hands like this and I offer this to you. May you be men and women who don't debate over debatable issues. May you extend love and acceptance, and mercy, and grace in the same manner of which you have received love, and forgiveness, and mercy, and grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Love you guys so much. Thanks for being here today. Baptisms next Sunday. It's going to be such a great time, and we'll see you guys then. Have a great, amazing, amazing week.